Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. Enjoy the podcast. So welcome to the Lit Lit Show with me, I'm Paul Hazard. And tonight we're lucky to have Phil Perrins with us, a very persistent fellow who's tried hard and stuck well on the other end. <laughs> and tonight we're going to look at media studies and possibly film studies. Um, Phil's a teacher of both. Uh, I learned he was a journalist. Uh, but I'm going to hand over to Phil. So, Phil, how are you this evening? And tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, hi. Um, so, hi again. Thank you. Um, I'll, I'll properly, um, confidently introduce myself now. Um, so, I'm Phil Parents. Um, I've been teacher for oh, nearly ten years now. Um, I'm not getting the yips, but I've, I've, I've looked back and go, oh my god, that's ten years ago, really, really quickly. And I know you've been, you, you were teaching for much, much longer than me, Paul. But um, it's yeah. So, I, I, I currently teach uh, film studies and media studies uh, in, in Bedford. I've gone via Wolverhampton. And then I moved down to Luton, and now I'm I'm teaching um, and leading in a school in Bedford. Right, so, yeah. excellent. And what do you teach there? Sorry, say that again, sorry, Paul. What do you teach? So I, I teach film studies and media studies. Um, yep. It's it's been a subject that I've I've been obsessed with um, all my life, and uh, I it's oh. Just kind of like, not like I'm going to reflect too much on, on my little lifestyle or anything, but um, I wasn't necessarily like a massively grade A student uh, in high school. And, um, but I've always fallen in love with films and filmmaking. And I mentioned about what my favorite film of all time is. And I said to you off air, and I've said on air as well, it's Superman the movie. And um, I went from like my love of just watching films quite passively to then. Um, you know, going to high school, uh, doing sixth form, and then you know having great teachers that I grew up with. I'm just going to do a really, really quick shout out to Mr. Andrew Coles and uh, Mr. Simon Goodyear, uh, who both taught me and both gave me my first job in teaching. And um, they they kind of like not necessarily ruined films for me, but um, now I can't watch a film without actually picking it up and going, oh, that's how that was made, or I can see what they did there, or I know exactly what they did off camera there. So I just watch films now in a different way. Um, and I'm just, I've just been, been fascinated by them, and not necessarily just the filmmaking, but like the media as a whole, because media is not a new concept, and we kind of like take it for granted sometimes, especially when we watch like you know the news or we buy a newspaper, or we go through our social media, or we go through YouTube, we look at our advertisement, we look at what's cool on the telly, we look at what's fashionable, we look at what's going on, and we don't actually really consciously pick up that it is actually influencing our lives. Now we might have like, a little bit more understanding of it, especially post-COVID, where we're all locked inside for a long, long period of time. Um, but kind of understanding that the media, through how they portray things, or because you know this idea of perception equals reality, uh, understanding that, kind of like dissecting like, every piece of information that you get, why is it telling it you? And then what is the effect that it's actually having on you in your life? And I've always been quite passionate about talking about that. And I try and get through to my lessons as well, that things aren't just there for giggles or YOLO effect. It's been put there for a reason to make you think a certain way or act a certain way or react to a certain way. And even like this upcoming week, um, I don't know how involved you are, but in terms of the King's coronation, all these little drip drops of information 
that's either coming from Sky News or BBC that's kind of creating these pro-royalty or anti-royalty kind of debates that are on individual kind of like news stations. And it's quite fascinating because you can kind of pick up who's for and who's against. And it's the same way with like elections as well. We're, we're going for like our local election, especially in our area. And you see all like the little propaganda that's trying to make you think a certain way. And I'm just, it's kind of like more or less a personal mission of me as a teacher to kind of like open up, not just like, you know, people in my immediate lives, but also, you know, the students that I teach to kind of like open their eyes and go, well, why are you absorbing that? Why are you thinking that a certain way? Why are you thinking that or presenting yourself in that particular instance? And it's just something that I'm really, really passionate about and not just being like a head of department, but when I was also a pastoral leader as well. Yeah, that's very interesting, Phil. Um, so it's more than the immediate message that a yeah. news story, for example, carries. That's what you want to get your students to think about. Yeah, and, and that, that, that's, that's kind of it. I mean, it's, um, I tend to say, and this is kind of like me talking about like in the curriculum, is, um, and I have this display up in my classroom that says perception versus reality. And it's kind of like how we absorb things in the media and say, so Paul, do you watch, do you watch um, like any reality TV or anything? Like, do you watch like, um, do you, I'm just throwing this out there. Do you watch like Love Island or I'm a Celebrity or Married at First Sight? I've never seen an episode of any of them, but I do know the kind of program you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so, so, not just like I mean, I told you about like I'm a massive fan of like comic book films and stuff like that, but I'm also a massive uh, fan of professional wrestling. Now, when I open up to my students and I go like, yeah, because yeah, I like pro wrestling, and I always get, I always get back there, and you're probably thinking this as well, Paul. Yeah, but sir, you you know it's fake, right? And I went, ooh, ooh. Oh, that's a really big bugbearer of mine when people say wrestling's fake. Yes, wrestling right. is predetermined. Like every TV show on the planet, like EastEnders or The Walking Dead or, um, you know, Game of Thrones or, you know, Breaking Bad. They're all predetermined. They're all written with an ending in mind. Yeah. And it's the same thing with reality TV. So when people watch things like Love Island, I always snap back and go, you know, it's like predetermined, right? Like they, they have scripts they have particular themes that they try and get the quote-unquote contestants to kind of like follow and even things like married at first sight which is a massive guilty pleasure of mine if anybody watches it. <laughs> um I, I i know that it's predetermined because some of the situations when you step back and go well why would a camera crew be there at that initial moment at that one time it's because it's already been pre-set up so yeah. when people take things as reality it's not it's reality that's been presented to us in a certain way and that's kind of how I try and pitch things. It's like even with the news, the news is being presented to you in a certain way with a certain, and I'm not going to sound like a conspiracist theory here, but like with a certain agenda by the person either saying the news or the line that's been given to them. Even when you watch your sports, and this is the thing as well, because I'm a massive Newcastle United fan, um, even in the sports and you see on like social media when they just talk about like the quote unquote big six and that's all they talk about. One, it's the big fan groups anyway, but if you think about who owns Sky, who owns BT, the people that own those corporations are also big fans of the particular teams that you often find on those particular channels. And I use like Rupert Murdoch as an example. Rupert Murdoch's a massive Manchester United fan, as well as a massive something else. Mm -hmm. But he is... <laughs> and so for years, he always wanted Manchester United on Sky because Manchester United is his team and he owns Sky. 
So that's kind of that, that perception that people kind of like rip read into their media. So it's just making people more or less aware of the world around them. And it's not all just presented in the way that they initially see it. It's all kind of like rip feeding into not influencing people, but persuading people to follow a certain point of view. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's a huge task, Phil, to try and get your students to understand what's happening yeah. there. How do you go about that? I, I, it's always something I believed in as well, because I don't know whether or not it was just the amazing teachers that I had when I had, you know, when, when I did film and media growing up in high school and sixth form. It's, I always try and relate it back to something that they're interested in. And a really good example of that was a couple of years ago when uh, Marcus Rashford um, was doing a, a big, big, big thing about him trying to get school meals, uh, free school meals back into, um, you know, for, for children that were underprivileged when the government had, you know, cancelled them. He did this massive, massive, massive thing and, you know, he made a massive U-turn, or he helped get a massive U-turn so we can actually feed um, underprivileged kids again. And I remember saying to my year, there were year 10, no, year 9 at the time, the year 11s now, um, that they were praising Marcus Rashford. Absolutely, Marcus Rashford. But at some point, the media are going to turn on him because of who is in control of that narrative. And then lo and behold, after like the European Championships, when he, along with three other England players, missed crucial penalties, the media turns on him really, really quickly. And then you started seeing a lot of negative stories about his wealth or he's buying houses for his family, but it's like being presented in a way where it's making him look like a villain. And there's certain newspapers that take quite good glee in that because it always blows my mind in this country. And I'm a, I'm a massive follower of American sports as well. We love bringing down our heroes more than we like bigging them up and putting them on a pedestal. And we built Marcus Rashford up and then we knocked him back down again. So I related to something that one interested them because obviously you've got boys that are football fans, Manchester United fans, Marcus Rashford is a really, really well-known liked figure in that demographic. And then you present a real life issue to them and then you show them that real life consequence of how he's going to be then treated. It makes it a lot more real to them and they get that empathy and they can apply that kind of like empathy and that understanding to other things as well. So like growing up with me, I remember when David Beckham got sent off against Argentina. And I was yeah. a little bit too young to really, really remember like, the absolute villainy that he was dragged through. I mean, I, I remember like watching clips of somebody made a dummy out of him and hung him outside a football pitch, like outside a football stadium. Um, and like all, all these things about like die Beckham die and all the death threats. And he was all over the newspapers and natural disgrace. And then two years later, he scores the free kick that sends England back to the World Cup. And then he then scored the crucial penalty against Argentina, which got revenge against Argentina. But for that mm -hmm. moment in time, David Beckham was the most hated man in the country for getting sent off in a football game. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you can apply things back to even like Hillsborough, because um, I use Hillsborough as a massive deep dive about how a particular newspaper is now not read in uh, Liverpool because of the false, the actively false stories that they printed nationally and globally about what the fans of Liverpool Football Club um, allegedly had done. And then a whole nation believed that that's what happened. And then years later, 
it came out that it was completely made up and it was fabricated. It was a massive cover-up. But for that long period of time, a group of people were villainized because of the influence of the media. So that's how quick things can really, really turn around. And it's just relating things back to what's happening to them now. Because if you can relate it to something that's happening in 2023, you can easily then apply that knowledge to something that happened in the 90s or the 60s or the 40s. So yeah. that's kind of always what I try and do. I kind of like apply it to their understanding of the modern world before I then try and take it back to an earlier piece in like what we're, like, what we're studying in the curriculum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what can we believe then? Are there any what can we believe? Are there any genuine stories in the media? Is there always some manipulation behind every story? Well, think of it like Chinese whispers, because how one person tells a story is going to be different to how another person tells a story. And that's kind of, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's impossible to not be biased when you tell a certain story or certain element, but that's why we take like statements and a really good journalist, a really good um, news reader or an investigative journalist, I should have said actually, um, will look at more than one side of it. And I think mm-hmm. what we're currently finding in modern times is that you're either one side of the argument or you're the other side of the argument and very, very rarely do one side talk to the other side quite rationally or you find people looking at more than one side of an argument. And I think that's the thing to really, really focus on going forward because social media, and I know we're going to talk about this a little bit later, mm-hmm. it's a wonderful thing, but it's also incredibly dangerous as well. And the algorithms as well that is programmed to you know, your social media can easily influence you down a very, very uh, different path to what you initially would have intended. And YouTube's a really good example of that where I love true crime. I love listening to true crime videos and true crime documentaries. So because I listen to quite a lot of stories about <laughs> death and murder and serial killers, a lot of my algorithm on YouTube is inf- or is suggesting I watch other other you know documentaries or videos on other serial killers or other murders. And that's just kind of like how mine alone is like bigger to me. But like other people that are looking at like different pieces of information, and we can talk about Andrew Tate in particular. If you stumble upon Andrew Tate and you're reading some of his stuff and you're reading some of his followers and the videos that he's posting up, and he's coming across as someone that you either relate to because of his lifestyle, because he is, you know, often flexes about how much money he has or how many cars he's got or the particular attractiveness of the women that he's with. And you get a lot of young followers, the young boys in particular, look up and go, I want to be just like that. And it's that mm-hmm. influence of going, well, I want to be like that. So me growing up, and you know, Paul, you probably had your own particular idols as well. Growing up as a Newcastle United fan, I adored Alan Shearer. Like, he was my idol. Um, oh, yeah. If I had met Alan in real life, I don't think I'd be able to actually utter a word. He was like the most amazing thing to me. When they built the statue of him at St. James's, and when I went up after it, long, not long had been done, I was in complete awe that they made a statue over somebody that I, you know, more or less worshipped my entire life. So mm-hmm. people look up, to, like young people look up to people all the time. And that's, again, that's another thing that comes up in our teacher training as well, where we talk about the particular positions of influence that teachers are in. And mm-hmm. it's not uncommon to think of other people locking up to either social media influencers, teachers, people of importance, 
footballers, singers, songwriters, movie stars, people do look up to other people. And that's another big you know, bearer of mine where like celebrities say that they're not um, there to be idolized. Yes, they are. People will look up to them um, because of the pedestal that they are placed on. So it is just being very mindful and kind of like just really presenting more than one side of an argument in the debate. I know I've just rambled a little bit incoherently here, but I, th I think it is making students more aware that what they are given isn't necessarily the final article. No, I think we're getting to the nub of things, uh, Phil. So how then do teachers, how do they compete with the likes of these uh, role models, these very, very powerful people who have social media, they have Instagram accounts, they have fabulous locations, they present themselves as physically perfect, extremely wealthy. How do teachers ground children, uh, bring them into a classroom and have them focus on history, geography, media studies? Because the world of those influencers is very attractive, very tempting. Yes. I, I, th I think there isn't a right or wrong answer to that. And I think that is down to the individual teacher themselves. But I, th I think the separation is teachers are real. And I'm not saying like social influencers aren't real, but they're not real. They are edited, they are um, photoshopped, they are presenting themselves in a way that they want to be presented as. Now, a teacher is not perfect. I will never stand on a pedestal and say, I am the finished article. I am the most amazing teacher. I am the most amazing person in the world. No, because that's wrong. That's a lie. So how I present myself to my students is, yes, I can talk to you about films. I can talk to you about media. I can talk to you about my likes and dislikes. I can tell you how to make an amazing film. I can tell you what is not a good film. I can tell you what is a good answer to your media essay. I can kind of suggest things in a little bit of different, you know, ideas. But I'm, I'm real and I'm infallible. I can be tired. I can be mardy. Trust me, when I'm the happiest teacher in the world, I am buzzing. But when I am a little bit tired for, I can be the mardiest Professor Snape-like teacher you will ever meet in your life. But teachers just need to realize or just kind of acknowledge that they're, they're, they're real people. And that's what's different between us and like the Andrew Tates or the YouTubers or the PewDiePie's or, you know, any other, you know, celebrities, movie stars, singers, is that what you have to offer is genuine. And students, and I think sometimes teachers forget this. And we had like a wonderful uh, teaching and learning uh, at our school on Tuesday, um, done, done by um, our um, Evelyn Hood. She's amazing. And um, we were talking about relationships and building relationships. And children just want to know that you care. That, that's kind of it. And I think that's the best power a teacher has over a social influencer, is knowing that a student actually knows you care about them. And I think that's something that can get lost sometimes in translation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> I'm just wondering then, Phil, do those influencers and those powerful people, and it doesn't matter if they're social media influencers, you mentioned some pop stars and other people, um, do they have anything positive and good and so on to offer young people? Um, a platform. 
um, they have a platform that is a positive. I mean, it's the it's the 21st century equivalent of standing on a soapbox and having the loudest voice. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a platform to do you know, really great things. But we can say the same thing about our, our politicians as well. Imagine, you know, like going back to like the 80s um, at Live Aid and Freddie Mercury standing in front of 90,000 people at Wembley Stadium and billions of people around the world watching him. Imagine that if he decided to not perform and put on a show, he just stood up there and just proclaimed hate. And he was just being hatred, like he was just speaking out all this hatred. But that's the platform that he had. But he had that platform to do something good, to present, to be charismatic. And that's something that, you know, social media influencers, footballers have, politicians have on a fairly regular basis, what the king will have the weekend during his coronation. They have that platform where you have undivided attention from people that are listening to you, that are wanting to know what you have to say. And I think if people use that platform in the right way, we wouldn't have as many problems. And I'm going to say this quite genuinely as well. And if any teacher is listening in the chat box, because I think some of my my colleagues might be listening as well. Okay. But, um, if, so, if social media influences actually use that for positivity and was presenting responsible as, as responsible role models. Um, maybe we wouldn't have as many particular issues um, that we, we might be presented in our schools. Um, but, you know, at the same time, it's kind of that what is cool and what is it meant to be cool, like in the 19, you know, in, in the 2020s. And that, that bad boy image, you're always going to get people that are going to try and push the boundaries. But also, if you set the examples of what is actually quite decent, um, yeah, that has so much power in itself. So I know I've just gone on a bit of a Freddie Mercury rant, but yeah, just, that was the first thing that popped into my head about having mm-hmm. that pedestal. Or like even some like Martin Luther King that had his, his I had a dream speech. But imagine if that I had a dream speech was actually just full of hatred um, for people uh, of a particular, you know, age group, demographic, gender, race. That speech could have gone completely. The history of the world could have been very different, but his speech was about bringing people together, and that's why people still think about that sixty odd years now, because he had that pedestal and he used it for good, as opposed to having that pedestal and using it for bad. But there are no real checks and balances in relation to social media. How do we bring any framework, any sense of values, any sense of what's correct to? influencers and people who can stand in soapboxes and things yeah i i, th- I think I, I read something not not a while ago and it was about social media and not just about social media but like the internet as a whole and it was something like what well, i think it was what david barry kind of like loosely alluded to when he had an interview with jerry paxman years ago and social media is still very much in its infancy it's still a child you know, if we think about going back to, let's say, like Facebook in 2004, I think when it first went up, I, I might be wrong there, or like MySpace or something like that as well. It's still very much in its infancy. It's still learning. It's still kind of got its training wheels on. So we kind of have to treat social media almost like it's a baby. And babies are going to make mistakes. Babies are going to learn, you know, negativity as well as positivity. And I just think as people mature with it in their lives instead of like this thing where you can just kind of like hate tweet or say something really horrible on facebook or instagram and 
behind like an anime picture and a fake name so nobody knows who you are. I think if people actually matured with it and it was like police with you know better values because I mean Twitter at this moment in time is like the Wild West. There is very little policing going on. Um, but I think as you know social media evolves and gets older, I think maybe people will also evolve and get older as well in terms of how they use it um, for its initial for its initial intention, which was just to interconnect. Yeah. Because I, I mean I found quite recently that a lot of social media platforms are all very much following the same kind of like trend. Facebook is following the trend. Um, Twitter is following the trend. Instagram, Snapchat, even LinkedIn has its particular toxic kind of like culture in there as well. So it's not just like one particular platform. It's platforms across the whole. I used to, um, when I started filmmaking years ago, when I was in high school, I used to post some of my stuff on my YouTube channel. And I'm, a, I'm a, like a teenager, so I would make something that would be, you know, I would be really, really proud of. And then you get like likes, you get like some really, really comments. And then you get like people just saying horrible things for the sake of horrible things. And that really, really hurt. But then if you look at it, it was most of the comments were written by people that were hiding behind a fake persona. It wasn't a real, it was just them trying to be horrible for the sake of horrible. So it is just that maturity factor and just kind of like, not necessarily policing, but like showing it the right way, like you would in, in real life. If somebody said something horrible, it used to have been quite hatred. Well, there would be ramifications, wouldn't there? There would be, you know, the police, criminal record, warnings, all that kind of stuff. The same thing I think needs to be shown or presented to social media runners. So that's a little worrying, just in the infancy of social media, because we've got the teenage years ahead of us, and then we'll have real trouble. Oh dear. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you raise a lot of questions in what you say there, but I'm just wondering then. Who should be policing what happens on social that, media? That that there is um, a question in itself because <coughs> sorry, I'm gonna grab a drink in a second. Um, While you're grabbing a drink, I, I, well, could I just say there are a number of people in the chat? Please put in any questions, and anybody that wants to call in, just let me know in the chat, and we'll get you uh, online with a question or a comment or two. Okay, so I I absolutely like talking. I talk professionally for a living, as we all do on this uh, on this radio station, I guess. Um, so who places it? Um, very very difficult question because I'm a massive proponent of free speech, but as I say in my lessons, and it, when when um, we we have this debate of you know the uh, the freedom of the press is what we essentially call it, where I give students certain scenarios. And I kind of expect what the answers are going to be. And they're going to be very, very human scenarios. So if you don't mind me just using this scenario on you, Paul, and if anybody is in the chat as well, please, 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 please answer um, your perception. But let's say as an example, all right, um, uh, a local criminal has, um, he is going to be in the local facility or in the local um, area where, you know, nearest, well, not necessarily near a school, but he's in a village. And you're a journalist. And you know what this criminal has done in the past. Do you or do you not post his address in the newspaper, knowing that he has done a particular crime in the past? Mm -hmm. what, 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 would you, what, would, what would you do? Well, that's an ethical dilemma. You'd have to think about that. There's no immediate, straightforward answer. That's the kind of thing yeah, you yeah, sure. in, in. Yeah. 
personal social development. It's about getting, you know, uh, critical thinking, extending people's, um, you know, ethical and, and so on thinking. Not necessarily. Go ahead. Yeah, and absolutely. And you, you're absolutely right. But then I, I approach it through like the eyes of the law, like the written law yeah. of the land. And I get a lot of students that say like, yes, you should 100% post his address in the newspaper because if he's offended, he's likely to offend again, blah, 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 people need to know, blah, 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 all that stuff that goes in. And I go, and I stop them and I go, that's a very human response, isn't it? To yeah. kind of like, get you back up against the wall, you want to protect, you want to let people know that this person is coming into your, you know, your vicinity and he's a criminal and he's done this, this, and this, and this. Yeah. And then you just have to apply the letter of the law. And if this person is coming out of prison, he's, he's by the letter of the law, he served his time, hasn't he? And if he's come out of prison, he would be known by the police. And so the police would know. So you then posting his address in the newspaper or online or whatever, thinking that you're doing the greater good. What then happens if then a mob attacks that person, seriously injures him or causes him death? Yeah. You would be implicated in manslaughter, wouldn't you? Quite possibly. Yeah, and, and, and when you bring it down to that level, you go, oh, yeah, I, actually, you, you are right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you go from a human response of, we've got to stop this person, we've got to get this person out to, actually, in the eyes of the law, and you can disagree or you can agree with it, he's served his time. He is going to be known by the local authorities in that area. So mm -hmm. you posting anything then harmful, in spite of you thinking it for the greater good, is yeah. potentially worse in itself. So that's kind of like a conversation that I love having when they're in year 11, when we talk about things like freedom of the press and the right for free speech, because I'm a big proponent for the right of free speech. Um, but just because you have the right to say whatever you want doesn't mean there's no consequences that come with it. And that's another thing that I think gets lost in translation massively. And I do find that students or young people forget that, that they are so high on their quote unquote rights that they don't actually know anything about, but they've heard it and they try and use it as a defense. They don't actually realize that there is consequences to what you say and do. Yes, you can go online and you can wrongfully slate somebody either over race, gender, disability, the way that they think, their political leanings, religious beliefs, all this kind of stuff. Yes, you have the right to say that. However, that's also hate speech. And there are you know, prosecutions that come with that in the eyes of the law. So it's making students just aware that it's, it's, it's you know, they just can't stay and do whatever they want. So in terms of policing, there's no right and wrong answer. I think we need to make things clearer in like in the media that there is consequences to actions. And I know when we look at like either, you know, the current political governments or governments in the past or celebrities or footballers, um, that's not always the case, but we also need to set the example of this is right, this is wrong. And there cannot be gray areas because if there's one gray area, there's going to be, um, you know, a greater scale of gray than there is of right and wrong. Hmm. But is, is right and wrong always black and white? Is it not a gray area? Is that the, is that the equivalent of one man's freedom fighter as another man's terrorist? Well, I don't always mean it's necessarily in the field of violence <laughs> either. You know, it's interesting yeah. because we began talking about um, 
I suppose it was extremes. And you said young people like to have extreme views and they rarely meet the middle and very rarely do they listen to empathize or understand the view of others. And here we are, you know, somewhat into the program and talking about really the law being an ass and that there isn't any black and white, right and wrong. And I'm just wondering, is that not the zeitgeist? Is that not where people are nowadays? You see, when I was young, it was one of the reasons you could be a Manchester United supporter because there was relative safety in supporting a team passionately, fervently, and someone who was from Liverpool or somewhere else, you know, could support mm -hmm. the team in the same way. <laughs> but yeah. when you sat down in the evening and you ate the same meal at the same table, you were friends and friendly. Yeah. But you had safe outlets for, yes. you know, that, that necessary um, outlet to expand the kind of energy that young people need to really assert yeah. themselves and find out who they are and what they really stand up for. But nowadays that doesn't seem to be the case. It seems to be, you know, you're extremist one way or the other with no empathy and no sympathy. Yeah, and I, 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 think, I think that's, I, I don't know if I've come across a little bit lost in translation now. I, I just think we do see in schools almost like a reflection of what the current jury is currently going through as well, where we see polar opposites battle either on political debates or religious debates or entertainment debates and things like that. Um, that it's almost, and I don't want to use like football as an example, but it's almost tribal-esque where it's almost like, well, you're, you're not from, you're, you don't support our team or you don't support our team like we do. Or you're from a different, you're from a different town, you're from a different country, and it's almost that kind of like tribalism that I do see quite a lot. I mean, I'm happily, I'm happily to be wrong, and I don't necessarily, um, you know, I'm going to stand on a, a soapbox and kind of like dictate it, but we do see a lot of polar opposites kind mm -hmm. of go at each other, and I think that is just a reflection of society at the moment. Yeah. So, what needs to happen, Phil? What, what needs to happen with young people in order for them to be able to navigate this difficult world and to come to terms with who they are and what the world is for them? I mean, in, in, in an ideal situation, um, in an ideal situation for um, my favorite TV show of all time is Star Trek. And my, my dream for mankind is to almost be very Star Trek utopian i know i know it's you know may the fourth and you know all star wars day and all that jazz but i'm a very i'm a diehard trekkie um and i my my dream is that star trek utopian where everybody will just work together and no one will care about if you're an alien or if you're a man or a woman or what position you have or what disabilities you have or where you come from but i, I think realistically um and this comes back onto why i think my subject is the most important subject or should be treated as the most important subject in schools is I think to get students to reflect and realize about the, the world that they're entering, where every single company in the world, Paul, has a social media influence. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my, 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 um, um, 
you know, I, I, have, I have friends that work for like Red Bull and work for social media and you know, they get paid to run social media accounts. Footballers and football clubs pay people to run their social media accounts to present things in a certain way. And so they are being influenced all through their young lives, whether or not it's through TikTok, whether algorithms, whether or not it's celebrity influencers. And it's very easy to become addicted to social media. And I think this is what it's essentially turned into. Um, mankind as a whole crave entertainment. We, we crave entertainment. It's the oldest kind of like thing that we can think about, fear and being bored. So that's why we have like cave paintings and books and drawings and paintings and plays and songs and movies and photography and <coughs> video games, podcasting, radio. It's because mankind, we get bored so easily. And media is that drug. And like any drug, it's incredibly addictive. And you could doom scroll. I find myself doom scrolling quite a lot in the morning or just before I go to bed. Sometimes at lunchtime, I'm sitting with my colleagues and we, we all stop talking, despite the fact that we've been teaching for four lessons up until that point. And we're just sitting in the staff room, just like doom scrolling through our phones and occasionally looking at each other. And, you know, it's not just students, it's, it's adults, it's society. We're almost addicted to our smartphones. So it's just making students or helping students realize or try and wean them off or not even wean them off, but just acknowledge that they are being manipulated, they are being influenced. And it goes back on to, we talk a little bit later about uh, maybe like uses and gratifications, um, which is my favorite media theory, that every form of media that we um, absorb, every form of media that we get into, we get four things out of it. We get entertainment, because humans crave um, entertainment. We get some form of social identity, where we relate to a character or a person because they share a similar ideology to us or they dress like us or we want to look like them. Um, yeah. We get interaction where we can talk to our friends about it. Like we've just talked about, um, when I talk about like Superman or I talked about like Marcus Rashford, we're having a conversation now about a topic that we're sharing, we're socializing with each other. And then yeah. that education factor as well of what are we learning out of this? Sometimes it can be learning about a particular character or we're learning something from a documentary or learning what time a tv shows on or learning a little bit more about character development or the special effects or whatever you get from it but we get that from everything that we absorb whether or not we read video game uh listen to music podcasting all that kind of stuff so hopefully our listeners have all got four things that i've listened to us for the last 50 odd minutes for where they've been entertained hopefully hopefully they've learned something a lot They've learned something along the way. They've interacted in our comments section, and they might be able to identify with some of the stuff that we've been talking through, whether or not in their own individual schools or some of the key points that we brought up. Yeah, and that's a really just big thing to really, really take away from this. Um, is that oh. we do get. Yeah, you mentioned the comments section there, and I do think there is a problem with the comments. I do have people who are letting me know that comments aren't being accepted, but don't let that stop you. There are plenty of people who are listening in. Please send your comments in. Phil, um, if I could kind of sum up a bit, and, and, and maybe we, we could move into uh, discussing my summary. Please, yeah. What I'm hearing is, you know, um, there's a kind of a, signal and noise issue here people 
young people are being bombarded, we all are being bombarded by the media. And the media is carrying other message. You know, they're like um, power structures that aren't necessarily immediately obvious and clear to us in the television, the social media, and so on, that we just munch like our conflicts. Is that fair to say? I, 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 think, I think it is. I mean, we only have to look at um, the national media over the past couple of months when it comes to teacher striking, where we will have snippets of support, but then outlets like, you know, if anybody listens to it, I, I particularly don't, I just catch their Twitter feed every now and then, but things from like GB News and even the BBC, where they will quite openly bash teachers um, with a particular viewpoint. And I, I have, you know, I have friends um, I interact with outside the school setting that didn't realize that teachers don't get paid during the summer holidays. That didn't realize that when we strike, we don't actually get paid those days. Mm -hmm. So, but it's that perception that is often given to people that's very one way. And sometimes the right news isn't always the loudest. It often is the person with the biggest platform. And I think that's the thing to take about off of this is some of our social media platforms, or social, sorry, I should say, our social media influencers have the bigger platform. Yeah. That, that's, mm -hmm. that's kind of it. And it often is who has the loudest voice often gets the point across the best. I think, um, isn't teacher bashing going into the Olympics? Isn't that a sport now? I think it's Yes, it is. And I, and, I, yeah. and I love, I love, I, I mean, sarcastically, I love when um, anyone bashes teachers online. It's wonderful watching like Sky News in the BBC comment section, or even Baroness Karen Brady, when she wrote her wonderful article in The Sun, bashing teachers and criticizing us for um, wanting fair pay and um, better rights, um, when we should just shut up and get back in schools and look after the children. Um, which kind of then makes Quite a, quite a good example of a very wealthy, wealthy person uh, with enormous uh, power structures behind her, writing in a daily paper for a certain audience and trying mm -hmm. to get other messages through on the back of what she's screaming and shouting. Yes, and, yeah. I, and I, I use this quite a lot as well. I mean, it's kind of past it where I've taught in the curriculum, but uh, The Sun is the most read newspaper in the country. That's so what whenever I mean. there is, uh, so yeah, so whenever there's, um, you know, a political election, and I, I use this as a stat every single year as well, um, because obviously, you know, Rupert Murdoch, who I don't know where we stand on teacher talk radio, are we, are we pro Rupert Murdoch or anti Rupert Murdoch? I, I, uh, oh, we're but, completely non partisan here. <laughs> so, like, so Rupert Murdoch often, I mean, has historically owned the biggest um, media conglomerates that have had the biggest media conglomerate voice. So when he owns Sky, he owns The Sun, don't forget the news of the world. He, I mean, he was the owner at the time of like, the Hillsborough stuff and the phone hacking scandal. So the Rupert Murdoch has a huge platform that has, I still can't believe The Sun gets as much readership as it currently does, but hey-ho. Um, and then, as you said, Karen Brady, celebrity, quote-unquote, she's on The Apprentice, which is a big show for the BBC. Um, she's seen quite highly in the business world. She did wonders of Birmingham City. I think West Ham fans might be slightly um, 
dubious about her, but she she is known in British culture. She's known in British politics. She's known in British um, society. So her having that platform on the biggest newspaper, the most read newspaper in the country, where she bashes teachers, and then most parents or most people that might buy those Sunday newspapers probably will have kids that might feel a little inconvenienced that those lefty teachers are having the day off and um, kind of like rolling around when they should be babysitting their children. Um, they, they, you know, it, it is going to be presented that way as the teachers are the enemies and you're sending your kids into those schools where the, te where the teachers are being perceived to be, you know, doing wrong by your children. It is going to get people's backs up because in our country, whenever there's three things that roll people up in this country for, it's when anybody attacks the NHS, it's when anybody attacks um, the economy, and it's when anybody attacks their children in education. And that's yeah. often why nurses, uh, nurses and teachers often get the most hatred from a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Phil, um, could we bring this background then to schools and teachers? Is yes. there anywhere where this kind of critical literacy is directly or didactically taught? Um, I, th I think for for a lot of schools, um, I mean, I, I do it, I hammer it home in, in media studies. I, I lay home, well, I, I, I lay down um, the political leanings uh, when they're in year 11. But I, I definitely think in most media studies classes, if, but then that's a GCSE option, isn't it? Um, I know some schools do citizenship as well, and that is brought up, but you often find more often than not, um, it's in often the PHSE lesson, or in our school, as we call it, life schools lessons, uh, where it is presented to students um, at quite a young age. I think we, we talk about it in year seven, eight, and nine in, in their curriculum. Um, but it is, you know, it, it is something that a lot of media teachers do. And I think if we if we actually had as a proper lesson and students are taught media studies, whether or not it's the practical element or the theory side of element, but to just get them critically thinking, um, to go from being passive engagers to active engagers. I think that's just the, yeah. the, the, um, the aim of every good teacher, isn't it? That you um, don't want your, your students just to, sorry, go on, you say Paul? Yeah, yeah. So you say that's the aim of every teacher. Should that be part of every subject then? What, to um, get that? You're, absolutely, I mean, that's kind of what we're all taught when we do our teacher training, isn't it? To encourage critical thinking, but also wanting them to be passive versus active. So I, I approach it because I, I hate, and I use this phrase quite a lot in my lessons, uh, is, well, actually, I use two particular phrases. Uh, that's a you problem, not a me problem. And yeah. the other phrase is, I don't like coasters. Coasters are what you put hot drinks on. So don't sit in my lesson thinking that you're just going to get a free ride for three you know, for three years, because if I think you're not paying attention, I'm going to hone in on you <laughs> and, until I know that you are paying attention. Um, but again, that just comes down to the individual teacher and their individual characteristics. I mean, isn't that kind of like the beauty of teaching, that not every teacher is the same? Yeah, yeah. I think that's the wealth of teaching and how, you know, children learn to relate to different adults. Yeah. It really then should be what we might call here in Northern Ireland, a cross-curricular topic, if you like. But yeah, one of the yeah. difficulties we find with that is that when no one has a direct responsibility, it gets lost. 
It just vanishes because we've all got our, well, it sounds archaic to say syllabi or syllabuses. We've got our exam classes. We've got our curricula to teach and so on. And, oh, this critical literacy, oh, sure, someone else will do that. How could we ensure that, you know, it is taught well taught in school across all subjects and children don't slip through that net? <clears throat> well, that, that's a difficult question in itself because um, because if, if it's one size fit all, that means you're kind of addressing it, but you're kind of not having that individual characteristic where teachers can be quite, um, how, how, what's the word right to say this? Um, they can go in different directions. They can... Yeah, I'm, trying, I'm trying to think of the right word thing of it, almost like uh, action hero-esque, where they could be quite, um, talk about like free speech, but also the responsibility of it. I think it's just a broad net that is just sent out from a faceless figure, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, then you're kind of like falling into the traps of taking away freedom of speech. I think the best way to approach it is to have it either as a, you know, every student has media student or has some form of media studies kind of like um or even more different life skills or phsc or whatever um you know i'm just i'm just a big i'm not a big fan of that one size fits all where that giant school that giant academy structure of here's the lesson deliver it how it says i, I think it needs to be down to the individual person um who's delivering it so they can actually get their points across because that's kind of how i've always felt with 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 my teaching where you can give me a scheme of work, you can give me a PowerPoint, but I'm going to bring my own experiences. I'm going to bring my own personality to it. I'm not going to be, I mean, I still remember my teacher standards, so I'm not going to go, go off on a tangent and try and influence in a negative way, but I'm going to bring a little bit of your personality to what you're teaching, because if it's just reading off a PowerPoint and you, the teachers don't care about it, well, students are not going to care about it because students will pick up that you don't care. And it's a, it's, it's not a joyous task for you, so they're not going to pay attention to what you're delivering. I think it needs to be delivered by someone that actually wants to do it and wants to actually get their points across and is quite passionate about it. And it, it just goes back into that individuality of the teacher, I think. How early should we uh, start to teach children about being critically literate? Um, I, I, th- I, th- I think from... I would even argue from primary school now because the amount of you know younger students, I mean that predates like high school, um, that use smartphones or iPads or they do things on TikTok or they're you know wannabe YouTubers and, and things like that. So as soon as I guess they are of that age, and I'm not going to say mature, but of that age where they actually have access to the media. They have access to all these different tools that other people use, all these influencers use, or celebrities use. I think that is an early enough age because you can teach them, you know, good habits instead of negative habits. But I, th- I think I think it predates um, high school. I think as soon as they pick up a smartphone and start scanning the internet, I think that's when we should think about intervening and delivering certain awarenesses. Yeah. So. The early, the better, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we start we start teaching them uh, maths and English in year one. I'm a secondary teacher, so I'm just guessing here. 
Well, it's, it's um, it's, it's new one. So, what would be the difference then of introducing critical, you know, thinking, critical media thinking, roughly about the same time? You know, you don't have to go in depth like Hillsborough, but you yeah. can still teach them right and wrong because isn't that what we do all the way through their young lives? We teach them right and wrong. We show them what's right and we show them what's wrong. It's the same thing that we just apply through the media. We can show them good things that they can accomplish using media. We also yeah. can show them bad things that they can do in the media. Yeah. Phil, you're very passionate about your subjects and you're very passionate about your students. And you're also very passionate about making them, you know, fully aware they are alert to what they're consuming in terms of media and so on and so forth. Would you think that is a school leadership issue? That school leaders should be just as passionate and doing something concrete to ensure that there's, you know, critical literacy in every school throughout the school? Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I do. I mean, like, as, as I mentioned earlier in the show, I'm, I'm head of department and I've also been uh, a pastoral lead as well. And um, I, I don't put myself in a pastoral because I don't, because I think that's unfair or means unfair of my colleagues as well. But I often think about how I present myself. And if I present myself in a certain way, I know that students will pick that up. I also know that if I present myself in a different way, students will also pick that up. So, for example, I know that if I look and act stressed, students are going to be a little bit anxious around me because they're going to think that I'm going to, not that I would, but I always flip out. But if I'm excitable, I'm in a good mood, I'm a bit chatty, I'm a bit bantery, I'm, you know, you know, talking to my students, it reflects on them as well. I think this comes down to like the individual leader. But I do know that as a teacher, when I would deliver assemblies in front of 200 kids, or if I'm just um, teaching in front of 32 kids, I know that how I present myself is how they are going to react. And I think teachers recognize this as well. But then I also am not ignorant enough to think as well that all teachers should be all singing and dancing like we're in Hamilton five times a day. Um, but I think it just comes down to, again, the individual person. I think that's the beauty of teaching. That is, we have a cohort of teachers that are all different. You are going to get the ones that are incredibly charismatic, all singing, all dancing, love life, can you know, reel off Queen's greatest hits and the Beatles greatest hits and they just know everything. But then you're going to get all those teachers that are really critically thinking, but they're not all charismatic, but they have skills and strengths in a different way. And, you know, I know, I know we're talking about the media, so I'm not going to talk too much about like um, leadership roles, but I think like pupils, staff also recognize that attitude reflects leadership. So if you are presenting in a certain way, well, your staff and your students are going to reflect in a certain way as well. And that's kind of like society as a whole, where we're thinking about, well, is Britain particularly broken at the moment with this particular government? Are multiple people happy? Are people aware that there are food banks? Are people aware that, you know, about crime statistics? Are people aware that people are going on, well, professions are going on strike, like nurses, doctors, um, train drivers, postal workers, all the people going on strikes. It's because we are a society are reflecting how we feel about our government or our leaders. And I think that's the same in schools. Schools are just mini governments, aren't they? You have people that are in power and what they dictate reflects what happens in the school itself. Phil, we're getting towards the end now. So maybe as a last question I could ask you, if you had a magic wand 
and you could use that magic wand in whatever you wish. How would you use it with the powers that be to create the kind of school that you would love to see? Um, oh, God. I, I, I'm just going to say this again. I'm not ignorant enough to think that every student should love and do media studies or performing arts or films or creative. But I think if I had a magic wand, my school in particular would reflect the values and the culture of what students actually want to bring into their adult lives and you kind of like shape a curriculum shape how we feel um, around what they actually want to do in a positive way so we focus quite a lot in school sometimes on negative behaviors but we don't actually always recognize and promote positive behaviors or positive influences so what i would do is reflect um you know what students actually want to do whether or not they want to be um going to sports or sports management whether or not they want to go into performing arts whether or not they want to go into filmmaking or um you know uh, going to medicine or geology or you know oceanography or anything like that um kind of like show you know give them the opportunity to see what they can go and do because i think sometimes with schools we limit and we try and put everybody in a box and not everyone's going to be in a box. So that's what I will try and do. Not really an answer, but that's the best I can come up with. Oh, I think it's a good answer. <laughs> Phil Perrins, it's been great to have you on the Late Late Show. And thank you so much for your patience. Um, for those of you who tuned in late, we had a number of technical issues. And Phil was sailing solo. Uh, <laughs> brilliantly, I might add maybe three or four times i think um but we look in the end and um it's been a great show i've enjoyed it you were a great guest apologies for the tech problems everybody don't forget tomorrow morning you can listen to poppy gibson on the friday morning break good night everybody thanks phil thank you so Bye. much for having me good night You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.